0: The following presentation by Monument Capital Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to the Off The Wall Podcast. A little bit Wall Street, a little bit off the wall. It's your go-to for unfiltered, straightforward wealth advice on topics that founders, business owners, and executives care about. And now, here are your hosts. Dave Armstrong and Jessica Gibbs from Monument Wealth Management. Okay, welcome to this episode
1: of Off the Wall. A little bit of a change here. Uh, Jessica took care of handling when I was out on vacation, cutting an episode a couple weeks ago. Now it's my turn to pay her back. So I've got Emily Harper here as co host for this episode. So, and Emily, this is worth mentioning to the audience because they can't see anything and they're listening to this, but uh, this is our first podcast recording in our new office, the new global headquarters for Monument Wealth Management uh, across the street and two blocks up. But anyway, Emily, thanks for for coming on. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about all things executive compensation. There's just so much more than just salary that goes into compensation packages. So we're going to talk about that today. And if you're driving on the road in your car, we will have a transcript available. So don't worry about pulling over to take notes if you hear something that you want to check back on later. But uh, yeah, Emily, why don't, why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about um, the episode today?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to have our guest here today to talk about this because the specifics of these compensation packages really have major implications for personal wealth building um, over the long term. So we're really excited to collaborate with today's guests to really bring these worlds together and give our listeners insight into some of the current trends in executive compensation. So we have Laura Balser, um, a senior client planner in executive pay and governance for Corn Ferry on Off the Wall today. She has over 20 years of experience consulting with publicly traded, privately held, and not-for-profit organizations on executive reward and benefit programs and issues across several industries, including healthcare distribution, manufacturing, biotechnology, and professional services. She's also a very proud and involved alumna of Emory University's Goizueta Business School and holds her Certified Executive Compensation Professional designation from World at Work. So thanks for being with us today, Laura.
1: My pleasure. I'm going to jump in also and just throw in a little bit there, but it's also worth mentioning that Laura and I are old Donaldson Lovekin Genret alum from our Atlanta days, and uh, you know since we're both 35 years old now, it's just hard to believe if they ever hired somebody who was 15 years old back then. But uh, it was a great place right. to work, and-
3: it was 23 years <laughs> ago, <Dave.
2: laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that blast from the past, Dave. Um, But we don't want to talk about the past right now. We really want to talk about current state. So let's start by talking about some of the trends you're seeing in executive compensation today, Laura. You know, we live in a really fast-paced world where businesses and economies are always changing, especially so post-COVID. Can you talk us through the current state of compensation packages and the conversations you're having with organizations that you work with?
3: Yeah, sure. So, um, we at Corn Ferry actually conduct a, an annual study where we look at the top 300 in terms of revenue, publicly traded companies, and and we look at the trends of CEO pay year over year. And coming out of the pandemic, companies were, I think, cautious and set goals that may not have been as as rigorous as they were before COVID. So in In 2021, what we saw was, um, really higher increases and higher payouts on incentive programs. And even in 20, we saw a lot of organizations use discretion, um, to reward folks for things that they couldn't necessarily control. And now what we're seeing is we've looked, we've looked at 2021 and then 20, looking back at 22 is that Incentive programs still paid out above target, yet overall pay, the increase was a little bit down than it was the year before. So for example, what we saw from 21 to 22 was total direct compensation increases close to 15% year over year. And what we saw from 22, 21 to 22 was total direct compensation increase of 4.6%. And when I say total direct compensation, what that means is base salary, which is fixed pay, plus annual incentive payout and long-term incentive granted. That's equity granted.
2: Great. Thanks, Laura. You've advised across a lot of different industries throughout your career. Um, is there anything you know, industry-specific um, as it relates to executive compensation or, or industry-specific trends that should be considered for some of our listeners who work in a, an array of industries?
3: I think that, well, first of all, I should say that I do work across various industries. Um, and I know that at least from a general industry standpoint at the executive level as organizations are looking forward they're planning for higher salary increases than they've historically made you know you may know the 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 fact that literally for the last decade most organizations have sustained a 3% merit increase well in 20 from 22 to 23, we saw that average go from or the median go from 3% to 4% across all industries. Some industries, though, were more conservative. The retail industry, for example, was more conservative. And we believe that is because they saw um, pressure on their profits and lower revenues. So they're being a little more conservative. Um, whereas with the industrial market, for example, they were more aggressive. Um, we think that's because some folks maybe hung on to their jobs through the pandemic. And then once the pandemic was over, uh, folks started to take the opportunity to move to other roles. And the talent market was really uh, far more demanding or, or tight. The talent market was tighter in industrial than it was in other industries. So in terms of a, a base salary uh, or fixed pay perspective, we, we have seen uh, variability. Across the potential increases and then the planned increases for the next year, in terms of incentive programs, I don't. I'm not seeing um, as much differentiation. I mean that that differentiation is really more in what metrics are in the program and how the organization measures those uh, or weights those metrics within the incentive programs.
1: So. I'm wondering if you can in a in a world where everything's pretty competitive for the for the highest level of talent what are some examples of innovative or unique executive compensation structures that have been successful in you know aligning those executive interests with those of the company and you know frankly its shareholders
3: Yeah I mean that's really a fine line Dave I mean you'll you'll often see an organization provide some sort of um signing bonus if you will and and often in the form of equity that's most frequently meant to make up for what the individual is walking away from, okay right because if you're part of a, an organization that provides long-term uh, equity, long-term incentive plans year over year, then you're all then you'd be walking away from at least two tranches of equity uh, being awarded at the end of the performance period right
1: you'll you'll always be walking away from some sort of deferred, Compensation—that that's my term—I don't know if that's the right term—but some compensation gets deferred. So no matter what, you're always yeah. going to be walking away from something, and that's yeah. so you're saying that, so, that that's that's the makeup.
3: That is the makeup, and so you'll if you read a proxy, you'll often read whether it's a CEO or a CFO again named named executive officers or what are, are just publicly disclosed. So you're, you're going to often see that, and that is a normal practice. The quantum varies. And um, it's often not scrutinized because the shareholders understand that it's what the person was walking away from. Now, in terms of, of other ways that organizations are trying to drive that performance, uh, there are some unusual circumstances that, that do walk sort of a fine line beyond the traditional annual long-term incentive grant. Um, one is a mega grant. Um, and one is an outperformance grant, and a mega grant is where somebody is awarded, say, four to five years of an annual long-term incentive grant in one shot. They aren't granted that if 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 we want it to pass muster with the shareholders. Then that mega grant is just for that one period of that is granted for that, uh, let's say, four to five years, it's it's taking it in one shot. Then the next four to five years, that individual wouldn't receive any other equity. It's it's a single grant meant to give a shot in the arm, if you will, to that individual with vesting that happens over that period of time in order to try to motivate the individual. Um and it's often a combination of uh, PSUs or performance share units and restricted stock units. And again, in sort of sort of, in order to pass muster, a portion of that, at least fifty percent of it, should be performance based, um, because we want the, the shareholder wants to see the individual perform. Um, an outperformance grant is one where you're layering on an additional performance metric, whether it's. TSR or some sort of growth or, or revenue a, achievement for that particular individual. And both a mega grant or, and an outperformance grant are typically awarded to just one individual in a certain circumstance or case to try and motivate that behavior that the organization's trying to drive.
1: Right. So two two terms there that you threw out, um, the PSUs and the RSUs. At like a 30,000 yep. foot level, can you explain uh, to redefine what those are—the restricted stock units and the, the it was a PSUs and why they're different. What's similar about them and what's different, and what should people know about those terms?
3: So uh, RSUs are restricted stock units or time-based units, and perf- PSUs are performance share units or performance stock units, and they are performance-based. Now, the way they are similar is they are both equity granted at fair market value at a certain point in time, usually annually, in conjunction with an incentive program, a long-term incentive program. The RSUs are VEST typically each year. And so if it's a three-year period when uh, the LTI is granted, the equity is granted, then typically we see a third of the RSUs VEST after one year, a third after the second year and the remainder at the end of the third year. And as I said before, they're time-based. So the individual receives the RSUs at the end of the vesting periods simply for remaining employed at the company. In terms of PSUs, they're they're granted at the same time. Typically, I'll, I'll step back and say, typically or I'd say best practice and shareholder preference is to have at least 50% of the entire grant be PSUs. So we typically see a 50% PSU, 50% RSU. So if you just, if you say somebody got a $5 million grant at the at the beginning of the period, two and a half million would be in RSUs, two and a half million would be in PSUs. And that two and a half million RSUs would vest, as we just discussed, a third, a third, a third uh, over, over that three-year period. The PSUs, when they are granted, that other $2.5 there are performance metrics and goals tied to those PSUs. It's typically a three-year period that we are measuring, and organizations can uh, uh, put, if you will, in the program, the PSU program. Some organizations have just simply one performance metric that they are trying to align or, or achieve, some organizations have two, some organizations have three, right? I'd say the average of what we see in a performance plan is two to three metrics. Um, because look, it's a risk. You're setting a goal. You're saying we're going to achieve X in three years time. And three years is, is a long, longer time to measure and so organizations tend to put at least a couple if not three metrics in the program so that they they can achieve some level of payout and what happens at the end of the 3 years is the metrics are um assessed against the goals and depending upon how they perform a there's literally linear interpolation that is conducted right if there there's a target for the goal. There's a max, there's a threshold and linear interpolation occurs. And ultimately, the PSUs are awarded and they can be at the same exact value granted if they meet the target. They can be higher, more shares if the target is exceeded or fewer shares if the target is not met but above threshold.
2: And that would usually be laid out kind of at the outset, we're not changing things along the way. It's it's kind of known.
3: Yes, 100%. In fact, changing things along <laughs> the way is frowned upon. <laughs> I'll bet.
2: I don't think many people would sign a deal where there isn't some level of understanding at the outset. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Laura. I definitely want to zoom in a little bit more on um, the restricted stock and the long-term incentives because that's one area where we really have a lot of crossover between our two worlds on the personal wealth side and on the executive compensation side. But before we do that, you know, one thing that I've just seen a lot written about, seen a lot on LinkedIn, and I think even Corn Ferry has had some, um, you know, thought leadership in this area is the issue of um, pay transparency and the impact that that's having um, on executive expectations surrounding their compensation. Could you speak a little bit to um, this trend of pay transparency and how you anticipate it impacting um, executive compensation packages?
3: Yeah. So the CEO... And other named executive officers, so typically the top five people in the organization of a publicly traded company, there is pay transparency. There's always been pay transparency. So, you know, if you're a CFO joining a, a publicly traded firm, you can look and see what your predecessor was making. Um, so, pay transparency at that level has not been an issue. The pay transparency rules that are out there now are largely at least my understanding of them are largely around base salary fixed pay um, and and it's about having that pay transparency at, at lower levels in the organization that said you just you heard me in the beginning of our podcast talk about the fact that we're seeing CEO pay increase year over year and listen in the 12 years or so that Quorum Ferry's been conducting this pay study I think there's always been a pay increase. And pay increase is driven by looking at other organizations' proxies and understanding that pay increases seem to naturally happen year over year. And as everybody else's pay increases, then when an organization goes to benchmark pay for an incumbent, they're going to see typically an increase in the market. Um, so it's almost like a circular... Uh, or vicious vicious circle of of pay increases. Um, but there there are instances where folks do see what how how people are getting paid at the top of the house, and they want to understand how does that translate down to them? Got it. So
2: not really a ton of impact um, maybe at the the c-suite level, um, but for broader organizations, um, you know it's, it's starting
3: a lot of conversations and and scrutiny. It is. And I got to tell you, I was on the uh, phone with a, a client last week who said that, um, a new client who talked about the fact that a lot of the younger folks, they just all talk about their pay. And, um, that's not the generation I grew up in. You know, if most folks keep, uh, their compensation, t- you know, close to the, ch- to the, to the vest? Is that the right term? Yeah, you can right. use vest yeah, or yeah,
1: right. Vest or chest. I think it's about cards, right? Like like playing poker right. and keeping them close. So yeah, I think you can go either exactly. way on that.
3: Right. It's like, you know, somebody says, Well, how'd you do on your bonus? You're like, oh yeah, I was happy or no, I was disappointed. But people don't actually like I, among the people I work with, we don't talk that transparent. We we do not have that kind of transparency. I think the transparency thing, Emily, is is a generational trend. And then I think the new laws are just going to help um, make that easier, an easier conversation for people to have.
2: That's so interesting. Um, I mean, I'm of a different generation and, and I don't know that I would want to be that transparent with anyone either. So um, maybe it's a, a personality preference, but... Um thanks for sharing that that insight i'm sure it's something we're going to continue to hear more about and and see more about especially as you know this is the summer of of strong labor and um you know, a lot of things going on in that world. So um, let's go back to talking about the stock-based compensation, since that is where we really do have a lot of um, crossover, you know, unlike salary, that's very fixed, very known um, stock-based compensation, whether it's in the form of restricted stock units or the performance units like you referenced, Laura, or options, um, they come with a lot of uncertainty in terms of value, um, even if we're not changing things along the way. Um, you know, your stock price could be, you know, 20% below where it was when you were when you were granted your uh stock units. So how are you seeing stock-based compensation um being treated as part of an overall package today? And maybe you could speak to um, you know, where options are falling into that, whether um, incentive stock options or non-qualified stock options.
3: Yeah. So in terms of options, like in terms of the the mix of equity that we generally see, um, and this is not only supported by our top three hundred uh, CEO pay study, but also by broader data, um, broader broader survey data. Generally, we see at the top of the house again at the at the uh, C suite level. Uh, a pay mix that is uh, 50% performance units, that's really driven by shareholders who really want to see a a minimum of 50% performance units, then we tend to see if options are in the mix, they're at a 15% weighting. Right, so 15% of the pie, and then the remainder at uh, would be RSUs. If if an organization is using options, um, I have one client that has 75% PSUs and 25% options. The the unfortunate thing is that you know right now with the market, what we're seeing is a lot of stock prices declining. So to your point, Emily, if uh, an organization has been uh, granting, uh PSUs and options um they're the value of those st- of the stock that was granted a year or two ago has uh decreased the stock value I and mean, it's it's a number of units that the person was issued right and so if the stock has gone from 100 to 75 they're already um you know in the red if you will even if they ended up uh, p- getting target on their bonuses um so in terms of stock-based compensation, that that is a risk uh, in terms of what is awarded, right, the, the potential decline of stock price. And honestly, we haven't seen this happening in a long time. This is the first time probably since, you know, in the past 12 years that we're seeing um, – More material declines than we've seen in the past. So, organizations are concerned. They're concerned about the retention, uh, the retentive aspect of the equity. And if options have been awarded, then they're likely underwater. And it's an expense when the organization grants the options. And if the options are never, if they never get above water or they aren't, they don't appreciate enough to warrant an individual exercising them, then the comp, then the company has lost the expense and the individual has lost the ability to have any wealth creation there, which is why having RSUs or time-based units be a part of the equity mix is important because at least it's a floor. It's a floor that may decline in value, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't decline necessarily as much as the value of of an option that is has is pretty much underwater, you know, and never able to be exercised.
2: Yeah, and Laura, I'm wondering, um, you know, my perspective on you know the restricted stock units and even non qualified stock op- options when I see that clients have those, you know, they tend to be a much bigger. Tax impact on on our, on clients uh, and executives. Then they may be expected at the outset. Um, you know the non, the restricted stock, especially when it vests, you're getting hit with that tax bill. Yep. Um, even though you're not really getting cash, you're you're getting your shares. Of course, you could choose to sell your shares, and in fact, a lot of people do sell a, a percentage by default to cover the tax bill. But when you're thinking about you know C-suite executives who are already in the highest tax bracket usually that you know twenty four percent standard withholding isn't enough to um, really cover the the tax impact of that restricted stock vesting um, and and sometimes there's a situation where there's a, a cash mismatch between um you know the tax bill in in the year and and the value that they're getting on that restricted stock is there ever a conversation at the outset when um, someone is being, um, you know, when an executive is looking at their total package and restricted stock is is part of the mix, is there ever a conversation about adjusting the value of that based on the tax impact? Has anyone ever brought that up or? You know, thought about that?
3: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. There are a few clients that I know of, or companies out there that allow folks to elect. You know, what portion? You know, there may be some flexibility in what goes into a PSU versus what goes into an RSU of the overall award, but that's rare, Um, and we tend to see most organizations default to netting the shares out to pay for that, the tax burden that you're talking about. So, you know, that, that what you're seeing with your clients is typically a default administrative aspect of getting equity year over year, you know, through the RSU program.
2: Got it. So, it's very important for our listeners who have restricted stock to, you know, make sure you're not just going through with the administrative uh, defaults to avoid tax surprises or, or work with, with us um, and your tax advisors to really understand how that factors into your um, tax picture year to year.
3: Yeah. And the, the other thing I'll add to that is because, look, I know I've talked a lot about the top of the house. If we think about long-term incentive and how it cascades through the organization, what we tend to see is that as the LTI is goes to uh, lower levels, below the C-suite within the organization, they are going to have a higher percentage of RSUs, right? And, and there are some levels that receive 100% RSUs and are getting these annual vesting opportunities each year. So I just wanted to echo and, and emphasize the point you just made, Emily, because Many of our listeners here may be at a, a VP or director level where they're only receiving RSUs. They don't have the PSU potential upside or downside. And, and it's something they do need to be more planful for.
2: Right. And I think people, you know, see their initial grant and they see where their stock price is and they think, oh my gosh, this is going to be such a huge, you know, Wealth builder for me, but then when you're taking forty percent off the top for taxes, um, and then you know it's very dependent on where your share price is when that stock vests. So, um, you know, they can be great wealth builders, but there's so much uncertainty there. But that makes it fun to plan for and and to work with our clients on year to year.
1: Yeah. Do you see people ever come through and say like, I don't want any of that. I just want cash. Is there is there pushback? Especially because yes. like in the context of a 20% pullback that we just went through, right? I mean, like, I'll bet you that increases the likelihood that somebody comes in and says, like, yeah, yeah, I just don't want it. I just want cash. Give me the cash.
3: Yeah. I mean, but people ask for cash. Listen, people at the top of the house also ask for cash, but that's it's usually not something that is approved, right? There's a compensation um plan and program that's in place. And if an organization makes an exception for one person, no matter where they are in the organization, what's to prevent them from making an exception for other people, right? And so, typically, the the compensation program is the compensation program. Right.
1: Yeah, Emily, that's why we couldn't approve you having a a McLaren race car as part of your executive compensation, because we would have had to give everybody one, so…
2: Yeah, <laughs> so anyone who knows me <laughs> who knows that's probably not my style. I may be asking for like a very expensive wine club membership <laughs> or a Michelin star dinner.
1: Uh, I don't know. I saw you in the McLaren, but okay. <laughs> um. So so Laura, there's just like there's so much great information about what's going on out there in the world of executive compensation. But h- okay, so how does somebody actually take all that information and? And know what you as an executive should expect when you're negotiating this compensation package. I mean, like, how do you know what levers to pull?
3: Yeah, well, I always tell people seek advice. Right if if you're if you're working with a search firm or partner, ask the person who is representing you. You know, I realize that the search partner is likely retained by the client, right, by the corporation, but it's, the search partner can also offer um, information uh, to the individual. Um, I always offer to my friends, if they ever want, you know, input, you know, please feel free to, to reach out. But the fact is, whatever the compensation package, I believe when a company makes an offer, they always expect a counter, so I always tell people counter, right? The worst thing that'll happen is they say no, right? Right, but I, but I do feel like when an organization makes an offer, they're expecting the individual to come back and make a counter offer, whether it is to base salary, whether it is to equity or incentive, uh, short term incentive target uh, percentage, or or equity within the organization. That said. The way compensation programs typically work is that, for example, annual incentive is offered and it's a percentage of one's base salary. The, that percentage is typically aligned with one's level within the organization. That's not typically a lever that can be moved dramatically. There may be a range, but I see it more as a static percentage. You have 50% of base salary or 20% of base salary, whatever it is, depending upon what level one is in the organization. So short-term incentive is an element that is a lever that that really can't be easily tempered or, or manipulated. But if you have if you ask for a higher base salary, then naturally that annual incentive target would go up because it's a percentage of your base salary. In terms of long-term incentive, we often see that awarded as a flat dollar amount or a percentage of salary. So if an organization has flat dollar amounts, again, those flat dollar amounts are likely based on the level of the person in the organization. Again, there may be a range for, uh, you know, that an organization has and they may grant more equity to somebody who's a higher performer right, as a way to incent them. Um, whereas, you know, somebody who's new to roll, maybe hasn't exhibited, maybe they give that person a little less. So LTI incentive equity is something one pro- could probably negotiate a little bit more on if it's part of the annual equity program. Um, and in terms of of what an individual is walking away from, um, you should always negotiate In my opinion, for um, what you're walking away from. Um, If your, if your annual incentive bonus hasn't been paid out yet and you're accepting an offer with a new organization, then you should ask for that new organization to, to make you whole essentially on the incentive and on any equity or or long-term incentive you might be walking away from. Um, Very few organizations these days, or I'd say it's not as prevalent these days to offer um, car allowances or other executive benefits. I mean, you, you, some organizations might have a a non-qualified plan where an individual can defer his or her own uh, money and, you know, and defer that cash to a point in the future. Um, but we're we're seeing fewer and fewer uh, executive benefits or perks. So that's uh, we don't really see that that's something that one can negotiate for. Um, if it is offered, it's part of a standard package, you know, to a, a, a certain group of folks, typically at the top of the house in the organization. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, I uh, that, two two things. Emily's heard me say this over and over again, but to the extent about asking, you know, first questions are costless, right? So always a. And then two, the answer to every unasked question will always be no. So just ask the yep. question, right? So there you go. I love that. Yeah. yeah,
2: questions are costless, but Laura, are there any red flags that stand out to organizations when someone is negotiating an offer or any situations you've seen where someone may have like overplayed their hand a bit?
3: Yeah, I I, I do think there's a balance to that, Emily, because I, I think that if one is... Uh, over, I'm trying to think of what the right adjective would be. If one is egregious in what they're asking for, um, and it's a take it or leave it sort of, you know, meet my off, you know, meet me where I want to be, or I'm walking away. Then, then that person really does run the risk of uh, of turning off the company. And, and, or starting off on the wrong foot. You know, I think negotiation is an important business tool and it's important, an important part of, of getting started with a company to exhibit that one can negotiate, negotiate in good faith and negotiate fairly, right? And I think fairly and reasonably are probably the two most important adjectives here, right? And that if one goes beyond the, the scope of, of feasibility, Will they have acceptance to accept something more reasonable, or is is this a, a sign of how difficult the person might be on a go forward basis? So I, I think it is a fine line that one has to to uh, to step around.
2: Yeah, and um, back to something that you said, Laura, about you know on the sh- the short term side of things, it's a little bit less flexible, a little bit less negotiable there. I would also imagine, you know, if someone is coming in and they're very focused on the short term and and trying to negotiate that as the ex- at the expense of, you know, really caring about the long-term incentives, that's probably a red flag that you're not very invested in this organization that you're coming
3: to. Right. Like you you don't have a line of sight or you don't want to have a line of sight to the future performance and growth of the organization that could be concerning for sure
2: yeah Thank you so much for sharing all of this, Laura, um, and and lending your expertise today and and pulling back the curtain on so many facets of executive compensation. Um, It's really interesting to hear what's going on in the world today. And if if we know anything, it's that change is inevitable. Today's world might not look like tomorrow's. Um, Do you have any final thoughts on how executive compensation may evolve or trends that you anticipate in light of, you know, our, we have ever-evolving expectations of companies. There's a lot of dynamics at force right now, like, like stronger labor, um, you know, anything that you see maybe changing in the near term.
3: I think, especially for publicly traded organizations, there's going to be a continued emphasis on variable pay, variable pay being um, everything outside of base salary, because, Shareholders want performance, right? And what we're seeing, what we've seen actually in the last year or so, is that organizations may have a positive three-year TSR, total shareholder return. That they have a lot of organizations in 2022 had one-year negative TSR, and that is bringing a bit of scrutiny from the shareholder services, the proxy shareholder services, and the shareholders, right? Wanting to ensure that the executives and those who have equity are really driving for the performance that's out there. Um, I think we're going to be a little challenged um, because some organizations have set goals maybe that are a little too aggressive um, or that they believed was, were achievable when they first set them. Um, and I think we're going to see some organizations with zero or very low payouts on long-term incentive, and th- when you couple that with lower share price, I think we're going to see organizations, some organizations faced with retention uh, concerns. You know, so I I think we're in a, in a bit of uh, we've got some rough seas ahead of us. You know, in terms of being able to. Reward for performance in a way that an organization wants to, um, and, and balance that with shareholders who only want to see or who prefer to see more performance-based compensation. Uh, balancing that with concerns we might ha- organizations might have around retaining their high potentials It doesn't even have to be executives, right How can we retain folks when the company isn't performing the way we've expected it to. Um, so I think there's a that that's where I see there might be a, a little uh, some bumpy roads ahead in terms of compensation because people aren't going to get those payouts that they the value of those payouts as if they've on the day they were granted.
2: Got it. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for being here. Um, like Dave said, that there will be a transcript of this episode. So if you've been um, driving or otherwise occupied, you can always go back to the transcript. And we also have some resources on stock-based compensation um, that we can link to. So, yeah. Laura, thank you thank again you so for much, just Laura. lending your expertise. It's been really fun. Yeah. Um, and we really appreciate your time. Thanks.
0: The previous presentation by Monument Capital Management LLC was intended for general information purpose only. No portion of the presentation services as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice from Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non investment related or planning services, discussion or content will be profitable be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of the content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he or she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. Moreover, you should not assume that any discussion or information contained in this presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized advice from Monument. Copy of Monument's current and disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at www.monumentwealthmanagement.com.